What is up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. Today, I have an in-house guest from Arnold Porter's New York office in our bankruptcy practice, Maya Fink. Maya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. You may pick up on an accent that Maya has because Maya is our very first guest from the country of Slovenia. I, I'll try not to reveal the accent. We're going to ask a lot of Slovenian-focused questions on the podcast, but I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you do. So, Maya, let's start there. What do you do? So I'm a restructuring lawyer, uh, which means that I basically represent all sides in any kind of distress workout situation. Um, that could be when things go really sour and companies go into Chapter 11 or some similar proceeding elsewhere in the world. Or I represent companies that don't want to go bankrupt, uh, and we help them think about how to avoid that. Um, and I guess one thing that is not that apparent to people is I often advise um, on various contracts um, to avoid bankruptcy or to help parties figure out what would happen in the event of bankruptcy and help them protect their rights if that happens. So you joined AMP and became my partner here during the pandemic, right? You, you have right. not even physically been in our office where you're actually in New York though, right? I am in New York. Have you gone in and seen anybody there yet? I saw a lot of people at our garden party yesterday, which was great, but it was a bit of an interesting move during the pandemic. I remember being in the office many times and being sort of by myself. Uh, but thankfully, everybody was very ready, willing, and able to meet on Zoom. So it just felt like home. So is the, was the pandemic sort of the genesis for the move? Or were you thinking about moving before everything got shut down? It was a bit of the genesis. Uh, in March 2020, the bankruptcy world became extremely hot. Uh, so the opportunity came up and I had known the group for a while and I thought it was a great platform for me. So it didn't take very much of convincing to jump. It was like, uh, I know, like last year, that around March time frame, it's like everything's going BK and bankruptcy lawyers were like the hottest thing on earth. Have things slowed down now or where, where does that stand? Yeah, it was incredible. So in March, I remember uh, organizing an event where we talked about the tsunami that's going to come and, you know, a bunch of companies like JCPenney and other retailers that were on their way to bankruptcy just accelerated everything. And then we had about, I want to say, six months that were extremely insane. And then everything slowed down and it's been steadily slowing down for the past year. Um, the reason for that is that the interest rate is historically low. There's a lot of money in circulation. And frankly, the distress space is, I think, the slowest it's been in about 30 years. Uh, high yield gets you 4% these days. So, you know, it's really ironic because I think it's just pushed a lot of the th of things that were going to happen to the next five years where lenders were willing to lend more money, extend, demand, you know, give other concessions. But you know, I think once we probably adjust to the new normal that this virus is likely here to stay in some form, and, you know, we can't use the excuse of the pandemic anymore, I think we'll see, you know, express losers and winners from this pandemic, right? Hospitality might be coming back, but you don't know when, and there's a lot of businesses like that, that at some point will just have to reckon with the revenues they are um, producing post-pandemic or in this new normal. 
So people always ask me how and why is this particular guest uh, connected to TMT? Uh, and one may be thinking that how is a bankruptcy lawyer connected to TMT? But we've got the answer for you. And, and fortunately, this is something that Maya is very interested in. And, and that is how is IP addressed and how is IP thought of in the bankruptcy context? So Maya, why don't, with that opening, you give us the general overview, why it, it's important, you know, from a bankruptcy lawyer and bankruptcy perspective um, to think about IP, you know, early on and in, in some of the things that you just mentioned in terms of contracting. Right. So it's specifically dealt with in the bankruptcy code. And also, like I said, a part of my business is advising on contracts as they get entered into. Um, at that time, you know, people typically don't think about bankruptcy unless they're extremely sophisticated. Uh, nobody wants to think about it, but the reality is that, you know, whatever you agree to in your contract is generally going to govern when things go sour. So specifically with licenses, you know, think about somebody who's just starting their business. They have a great idea, but they really do need a license to whatever IP, right? There is to run their business and it's extremely crucial. The good thing we have in the U.S. in Chapter 11 is that a licensee has some special rights. So a license would generally be deemed something that's called an executory contract, which just means that both parties um, of the contracts have ongoing obligations. So the tool that a debtor in Chapter 11 has is that an executory contract can be rejected or it can be assumed. And if it's rejected, the counterparty would then have a damages claim. But in that sense, the question becomes, well, if I have a license and my license is rejected, what happens with the IP that I actually need to run my business? So thankfully, in the bankruptcy code, we have Section 365M that expressly provides that even if a license is rejected, the licensee would have the right to continue using the IP for the remainder of the life of the contract or any extension it's, um, it's entitled to, so long as you keep on paying royalties. So in that sense... You know, you have this lifeline, if you will, that even if your licensor files for bankruptcy, um, you would have uh, the right to continue using the IP. What does it mean to be rejected? It's, it results in a breach, legally speaking. So it means the contract, it's not terminated, it's breached. And so you would have a damage claim as of the beginning of the bankruptcy. Uh, but in this particular sense, you can continue using the IP. The problem is that sometimes... It doesn't really help you to just be able to use the IP, right? Sometimes you need somebody to keep on updating the IP, upgrading, maintaining for you and so forth. And so when people are entering into licenses, they usually come up with either an escrow where they, the licensor would place the source code, right? So that can be released um, before bankruptcy, ideally, um, and it can be maintained that way by the licensee. Or if it's something complicated, that's not like a software that everybody can just update on their own. You would also make arrangements to have access to the employees of the license or something like that that allows you to you know, keep your rights and keep your business running. Of course, the other alternative is if it's something that has a lot of substitutes, you, know, you might also consider just switching that IP with something else and getting into a new license. But you know, at least the, the things that I'm usually involved in um, pertain to the types of software or other IP that's, of course, either unique or very um, crucial for the business. So that's why we're very focused about those provisions. So if I had a, a startup company and I want to try and tease this out a little bit and give it some 
practical context. So if I have a startup company and uh, I need certain software to run my business and I go out in the market and I enter into a license with a you know, a bigger company and I license their software, I sign this agreement and I go off on my business. And then that big company goes BK or files for chapter 11. This is the type of situation that you're talking about. I needed to have protected myself up front when I execute the license to, to make right. sure that I can keep using it. Yeah. So ideally you would protect yourself by first of all, thinking through it. So the example you mentioned, right? Smaller well, licensing through things. <laughs> this is a lot of assumptions here. Yes. <laughs> right. <should> think through it. <laughs> right. But that's why I'm saying, you know, it's, it's sort of like life insurance, right? We don't think about when we're 20, but it's probably good to think about it. So, it, you know, it all depends all, also on the leverage of parties, of course, when you contract for these things. So I think for starters, right, if you at least know what 365N is, that's great. Um, the other thing, of course, to consider is what are your licensors, even a U.S. entity that would file for bankruptcy in the U.S. Um, now, Chapter 11 has this protection, but a lot of jurisdictions abroad don't have these things, right? Some jurisdictions would put in a trustee that can simply terminate your right to use the IP. So that's the kind of situation you want to think about when you're contracting. And again, it's, you know, it's a bit of a matter of leverage, but frankly, these provisions have been around for a long time. And so it's definitely worth thinking about when you're entering into the license. Now, ideally, you would put in some triggers or some reporting requirements, or at least you would monitor on your own to sort of get a heads up that something might be going bankrupt, right? So in the beginning of the pandemic, right, there were certain businesses that, of course, were hit harder. So in a situation like that, if you're the licensee, might be worth checking in with the company, right? Um, asking for updates, trying to get a plan in place before there's a bankruptcy and so forth. And this is that, like, in the software context, you said you, they can place it in, in an escrow during the bankruptcy? Yeah, so it's, it's a well-known and well-used concept where you place the source code. When you're entering into the license, you agree that the source code would be put in escrow. And then usually the triggers to release the source code are things like you know, financial deterioration, certain you know, revenue drops and things like that, and, of course, bankruptcy filing. What about uh, like situations where, you know, I, you know, you did mention like you should find a replacement software. What, what if there's no replacement software, there's no replacement IP, are there other protections that you should be thinking about in terms of your upfront contracting to try and uh, address that sort of doomsday scenario? Yeah. So something that's helpful is to have the IP held by an SPD, a special purpose vehicle that's basically bankruptcy remote. So usually the way that will work is that the SPD uh, is only in place to hold the IP. Uh, usually they have restrictions, you know, in the charter about incurring debt uh, and filing for bankruptcy. So that's that's certainly a helpful tool. Um, the other thing you might consider is just buying the software, right? If you know, it could be you know, if you're just starting out, it might not be feasible, but you could put in a right to buy it if certain things happen, right? So even if it's not something that happens immediately, it might be you know down the road, it's a good option to have. All right. Now I seem to recall maybe like in the last year or so, there was a Supreme Court case about trademarks in the bankruptcy context and how those are handled differently from how we've just been talking about it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So it was a case called technology. Um, 
And the confusion and the circuit split came from the fact that IP as is defined in the bankruptcy code actually does not include trademarks. And so when people were using section 365N, which as I mentioned, would continue your right as licensee to use the IP, uh, there was a split as to whether that is true for trademarks or not. So the way the Supreme Court came out uh, was extremely elegant and right, in my opinion, um, because they completely moved away from 365N and basically said, if there is a rejection of a contract, it results in a breach. And so whatever rights you have, regardless of what the IP is, whatever rights you would have had under non-bankruptcy law would apply in a breach. So practically speaking, what this means is that if you're entering into any kind of license, you're going to have the license governed by whichever law, of course, you agree to. You should really understand what, under that particular state law, whichever law it is, would happen in a breach outside of bankruptcy, right? Would you still have the rights to continue uh, using the IP or not? Of course, it's helpful to put a provision like that, right? Uh, again, completely outside of bankruptcy, that if there's a breach by the licensor, you can continue using the license. But based on that Supreme Court decision, that is what the outcome is. And so again, uh, trademark is not um, exempted, exempted from those protections so long, again, as you know what your rights are under non-bankruptcy law. So these are some things you can actually contract for at the beginning as well to try and That's protect right. yourself. That's right. All right. Well, um, I have been reading a little bit about bankruptcy because I know almost nothing and hopefully never have to go through bankruptcy in my life, knock on wood. Uh, my, I read an article You'll about- You'll be in good hands. Yeah, <laughs> I'm calling you the, about, and this is something that's always confused me. The lawyers um, seem to make a lot of money uh, helping companies go through bankruptcy, uh, which to me nice. stands in stark uh, opposition to the shareholders or everybody that own the company, but the lawyers seem to get paid still. Uh, and also, oftentimes the executives of companies that are going bankrupt still get their bonuses and huge huge payouts. How is that possible? And is there anything being done in that regard? Yeah. So <laughs> the logic behind, if we're just talking about the lawyers, right, I'm not going to spit in my own bowl, but the reality is that bankruptcy was a niche practice 50 years ago, right? Uh, only certain firms were practicing bankruptcy and then it became this, you know, fancy lucrative business. The reality is that lawyers in bankruptcy can really create value for all sides of the table with creative solutions that the bankruptcy code frankly allows you to implement. So I do think it's fair that if somebody increases value, right, they're given a piece of that. And the same goes to executive. There's some provisions in the bankruptcy code that allow retention payments and bonus payments. And, you know, it's not much different than any incentive that a good manager gets, right? Especially if you, if you manage to pull a, a company through bankruptcy. And there's, of course, people that specialize in doing that. There is a lot of, um, let's say, different feelings about that, right? Because I agree with you, right? From, from a general perspective, it could be a little controversial. But again, if you look at the picture of a company in the beginning and how it looks like when it comes out of bankruptcy, you can always liquidate something. And you know, 90% of the time, that's going to just destroy value for everybody as opposed to, you know, I guess, given payments and bonuses to people who might be able to turn it around and create a lot of value out of it. All right. I, I, you did not spit in your own bowl, uh, to use your own words there. I, I appreciate that. That was a great explanation. That's why 
good bankruptcy lawyers like yourself are so valuable to companies or you are like you, as you said, still creating value for everyone um, through the bankruptcy and on the other side. So that's why I guess why people call you, which is good. Thank you for that explanation. Because uh, it yeah, always has... know, I try to uh, I try to move away from a term that some people use, which is vultures. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, people may <laughs> refer to lawyers like that all the time. There's a guy. um He's an NFL reporter, Andrew Brandt, who has a phrase to ev- for everything is there are the lawyers. And That's he right. says it to everything. Anytime there's a dispute, anytime there's a contract negotiation in the NFL, anytime somebody gets fired, like John Gruden did, he just says there are the lawyers. Uh, and I guess there we are, but we do add significant value. And so, you know, it's like the phrase, like you uh, don't like lawyers until you recognize, you know, realize you need a good one. Uh, and then they're important. So that's why I guess people come to us here at AMP. All right, Maya, I want to talk more about Slovenia. When I asked you about it when we were preparing for this podcast, you said that it was the only country with love in its name. And I didn't know what the heck you were talking about. But then I looked at it and it actually says love in its name. And then you sent me something about Slovenia with a map and it was awesome. So why don't you tell our listeners like, what is Slovenia known for? How was it growing up there, going to school there? And how did you get to the U.S.? Yeah, so Slovenia is, as I like to say, an hour and a half east of Venice. That's where I usually fly to. Uh, it's south of Austria. And nowadays, it's probably the most popular because it's north of Croatia, which you know everybody goes to these days. Um, I was actually born when it was still Yugoslavia, which is kind of weird. Uh, when I was five, it, uh, it broke away from Yugoslavia and became an independent country. And, um, it's an interesting place with 2 million people, uh, that pretty much all look the same. Thankfully, the country is a bit more diverse. It has the Alps. I grew up, um, on the coast, which is kind of nice. Uh, it has caves, it has spas. So it's a pretty popular tourist destination. I think it's actually a really nice vacation place for about a week. There's a lot of things to do. Uh, but other than that, like I said, it's a place of two million. So now my, you know, New York City neighborhood is similar to that. Um, but I can always, you know, walk out of my New York City neighborhood. So it gives me a little more anonymity. Uh, but that's the problem, you know. You know, everybody in Slovenia, everybody's your neighbor. So yeah, in fact, yeah. I went to a networking event on Monday and I met somebody from London and he said, Oh yeah, you know, I worked with such and such from Slovenia. It turns out he was a classmate of mine. So <laughs> it's like six degrees of, of Kevin Bacon. Everybody knows everybody in Slovenia. So your, does your family still live there? Yes. And, and so my how, husband also happens to be from Slovenia. So, ah, uh, yeah. So how often do you go back? Uh, we usually go in the summers. We try to go over Christmas. So let's, let's talk about one more thing. I, I hear that you were like a competitive skier or like an amazing skier, some amazing kind of athlete. What is that about? So I was technically a competitive tennis player. And then when that went kind of nowhere, um, like how competitive, like nationally competitive, I was on the national team when I was about 14 and then in tennis, I I don't think you should shrug your shoulders about that. You were on the national team. So like you were going somewhere. (laughs) Well, still look, I mean, uh, you know, you can be the best person at something out of tennis, still the best at something. You should be proud of that. That's awesome. So best in the village. So (laughs) anyways, so. But then it's, you know, it's, it's pretty much when you're 14, you, you know, either you sort of make this your absolute priority or you don't. Um, so I guess my father said to me, I think it's better if you're the best tennis player among lawyers, the longevity of your career would be better. 
So best tennis playing. You're probably the best tennis player at the entire firm. Now I heard there's somebody in DC actually. I need to go down and challenge them. But um, there's some people around that I actually think are good at tennis. But I should set up a tennis match and figure out who that person is. I know there's a guy in one of our LA offices too that plays a lot of tennis. You should challenge them and then crush them. Totally. We should do a charity event. In any event, um, I then uh, I skied my entire life because the, the one or rather the best thing about Slovenia is that it's really positioned well for both you know beach vacations or winter vacations. Um, so I eventually became an instructor because, you know, I didn't want to waiter tables necessarily. Um, so I did that throughout college along with some other interesting jobs. And, um, yeah. And then when I moved here, I just, you know, I love going out West. Um, you should come out to Colorado. We, we have a lot of tennis and we obviously have amazing skiing. I am well aware. So my dream restructuring would be something like Vail resorts, but of course they're never going bankrupt. Yeah, and then, you know, somewhere where I need to be stationed for about yeah. six <laughs> yeah. months, ideally between October and April. <laughs> yeah, I got to go on site in the winter <laughs> yes. in Colorado and Utah and, and work. Yeah. Wink, wink. And awesome. it's a personal evaluation of the snow, you know. <laughs> yeah. What is the snow like in Slovenia? It's, in, it's the Alps, isn't it? Uh, it's the Alps. Um, it's a little bit like the Northeast. The problem is, or rather not the problem, but the good thing is it's, it's kind of warm. It's, you know. 25 to 35, I'd say. So skiing is really between 8.30 in the morning and noon. So the best thing that I discovered out West is that I really don't need to be out there at 8.30 on the top. It's frozen and it's very icy in the mornings when you get on first lift and you can make I first love tracks. I love that. I'm not, I'm not an off-piece kind of person. I grew up on groom tracks. That's my thing. I have my, you know, five foot five skis. Oh, that's awesome. One day right. I'll learn. We got to yeah, get you out here. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, Maya, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, and I, I love slow I love, uh, having you on and getting a little bit of culture here in TMT time. So like, before I let you go, I want to hear like, what is two questions? What kind of food is Slovenia known for? And are there any Slovenian restaurants by you in, in New York city? And then tell me who the most famous Slovenian person is right now. And I think I know who that is already. <laughs> but I want to see if we'll see where you go with that. Okay. So I'll start with a famous person. I think it has to be Luka Doncic. Yeah. Yeah. That's where so, I was going. Yeah. I was, uh, I was in Slovenia during the Olympics and you know, they, they were, they played very well. They really should have won, but whatever. Dude is lights out. I mean, he is, he is amazing. He could be LeBron good uh, he could for, be. The, for the Mavericks. Uh, hopefully he stays there. He is, he is legit and the Slovenian. That's right. And um, in terms of food, so it's a mix of German food on the north side. And then where I grew up, it's all Italian food. So oh. if you come to my house for dinner, it's going to be all Italian. So it's delicious. So yes. I'm in. I'm in. But there's, that's why there's no restaurants, because <laughs> yeah. if you yeah. go to an Italian restaurant but for an appetizer and then to a German one for me, that's awesome. Uh, I did get some inside info that. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about, even though it may be embarrassing. I heard that in addition to the national tennis team and this incredible skiing, as well as the the top-notch bankruptcy council, you also I'm glad you mentioned that third. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. You're right. I should have gone in the other order. But you know, look, this is this is a fun, but we're not very serious here on Team T time. So 
I, the other stuff is more interesting to our listeners, I think, frankly, because you know the, the, it provides the background on who you are, which is what this last piece also provides in addition to those three things. And that is you were a singer at some point? Uh, I, I wrote songs. Uh, and then by pure accident, I recorded a few of them. Um, the friend of a friend had a studio. And so I quickly realized I could be a musician because they started midnight and end three days later. And I was like, no. You, you are the, the <laughs> second TMT time guest now that is a, a recorded artist. Uh, Nick Nama, who was on a couple months ago, is also a recorded artist. But this is awesome. We have, we, in addition to a tennis tournament, we may need like a, a sing-off or something like that, Perfect. like a glee sing-off. Uh, you got to come down to the DC office and make that happen. You also, one of the reasons why I knew that uh, that may be in the cards for you is that you were one of the few guests that figured out the microphone headset quickly, whereas some of the other people fumble around and we take 20 minutes just setting up the technology, which to be fair, doesn't seem that complex. No, in fact, I tried it on, you know, I sang my new Adele song. It was great. Yeah. Awesome. All right. <laughs> well, thanks, Maya. Good to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you.